You're listening to The 30 Minute Expert, the podcast that aims to make you an expert on a chosen topic in 30 minutes. I'll be uploading information on future episodes to Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just search at 30 Minute Expert. That's 30 Minute Expert. This episode is designed to make you an expert on the troubles. Northern Ireland has experienced a ceasefire since 5.30pm on Good Friday, the 10th of April, 1998. We now have an entire generation who have grown up with peace in Northern Ireland. Here to help us understand what happened, and to try and make you an expert on the topic, is Dr Gemma Clark, Senior Lecturer in British-Irish History at the University of Exeter. Hello, James. Um, Your Twitter bio says you are a historian of violence and Ireland, which might go some way to already answering the question of why you're the best person to make us experts on this. But perhaps you could just shed a little light on how you've come to be an authority on the matter. Okay, well, I grew up in Manchester, so I've always had an awareness of my own Irish heritage and I guess the importance of Irish people and the Irish diaspora around the world, including in parts of Britain. Um, And when I went off to university, I wanted to kind of learn about the roots of a lot of the violence and conflict I'd seen around me kind of growing up in the 90s, seeing things on the news, seeing a bomb in my own city as well, and really trying to get to grips with this this issue of identity and why feeling like you belong to somewhere, whether that be Britain or Ireland or Northern Ireland, um, why that makes you, I suppose, make certain decisions and potentially become involved in militarism or paramilitarism or violence. Um, So that was something I took up when I got to university at Oxford. And studying Ireland and Irish history really opened up lots of different topics to me. It was something that was very accessible. You know, journalists were allowed there. It was on our screens all the time. So it's something that we've really had to, uh, we really had to come to terms with at the time. And the legacies of it are still very deep um, within, within the state today. When it comes to matters of huge historical importance like this, I think it's key to establish a timeline. So do we need to go back 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years or more? To really understand the Troubles, which focuses in the ancient province of Ulster, six counties of which are now the modern Northern Ireland, we need to look at the, the late 16th into the 17th century. What happened was the conquest starting in the time of the reign of Elizabeth I. So she essentially conquered Ulster and took a lot of the land that the native population, the Catholics, those uh, belonging to the Gaelic culture owned. And what we see is a growth of bitterness between this native population and the settlers or the planters who are coming coming in from England and Scotland. I say that was where... Essentially, the trouble started. I mean, this is a this is a theme we see throughout history, of course. This idea of colonialism, imposition of rule from outside, you know, taking other lands and the resources from those who are already living there, and this can really store up problems for the future. Ireland was majority, if not virtually completely Catholic at the time, because unlike Britain, it hadn't gone through the Reformation. And Protestantism hadn't taken hold in the same way it had in Great Britain. So those with the resources, those with the power, those Gaelic landowners and lords who were bent on rebellion and trying to get away from the influence of these English kings, the Tudors, kings and queens, in fact, it was these settlements from England and Scotland that essentially brought 
Protestantism into Ireland. But what's really important in the case of Ireland, and especially Northern Ireland, is these two religious groups also align with social groups. And whether you're a Catholic or a Protestant essentially denotes how powerful you are, how much land you have, how much wealth you have. Um, so we've got Catholic rebellion in 1641 being followed by massacre of Protestants, and then the Protestants essentially win back their power with the Battle of the Boyne in 1690, the victory of the Protestant king, William of Orange, against the ousted Catholic king, James II. And this is a victory for Protestantism, but also a victory for Britishness, if you like, um, which is still celebrated today in Northern Ireland with the 12th of July parades. You then saw growing in Ireland, I suppose, a substantial body of people who then were loyal to Britain. And then that kind of grew to the time of the Irish famine in the late 1800s. Would that be about right? Yeah, exactly that. The culture in the north was Protestant, but a particular kind of Protestantism, which has certain qualities associated with it, many of which are stereotypes. But there are, of course, a lot of traditions built into this, you know, cultural traditions. So things like being self-improving, being entrepreneurs. Um, so what we see in the North is, yes, a, develop, a development of a group of people who are loyal to Britain and who benefit from Britain. But it's also a very strong religious and cultural identity. They have success as Protestants, as Unionists, and those two concepts are very entwined all together and the sort of success they have is economic so in the north we see huge industrialization from the 19th century the linen industry shipbuilding famously the titanic was built in belfast this is in contrast to the rest of the country ireland in the south the country that would become the republic that it is today was a predominantly rural economy right up until the 20th century We've got this group in the north who want to stay with Britain because of their economic links, their social, cultural, religious links. We've also got growing in the south a movement to get rid of British influence. And British influence is strong across the whole island because what's really important to remember is through the 19th century, from 1801, there was the Act of Union and that brought all of Ireland under British control. The Great Famine from... 1845 onwards was the consecutive failure of, of the potato crop on, wh on which the poorest of Irish society depended, really sort of underscored the differences because it was seen that this union with Britain really didn't work for the majority, it really didn't work for lots of Catholic, the native population, the poorest of society. It was a very exploitative system. Whereas the wealthier Protestants in the north, the industrialists, they were doing much better out of this. But they weren't thinking yet, until the revolution of the 20th century, no one was thinking about partition. No one was thinking that we'd have to set up a separate state in order to protect the identity and interests of these people. But as time went on, nationalism became more and more Catholic, and at the same time, loyalism or unionism, broadly speaking, became more and more Protestant and, crucially, more and more focused in the north. Because there were people in, in the south of Ireland who felt closer to Britain, especially Protestants, of course, especially rich people. They were a fairly quiet, well-to-do minority who sort of kept themselves themselves. Where identity was really strong was 
was in the north because that's where there was the highest concentration of Protestantism and the highest concentration, if you like, of British influence. So you've then got growing factions in Ireland with different loyalties. How did this then lead to the formation of a Northern Ireland? In response to this growing nationalism, especially after the, after the famine and the, the disaster that was for, for Irish people, you know, a million people died, a million and a half had to leave Ireland. There was a movement with the support of the British for home rule because it was believed that it was better for them to have some degree of their own, making their own laws, but also to keep them within the union, keep them within the empire. This proposal for home rule for Ireland however, did not go down well with the Unionists, the people in Northern Ireland in the early 20th century, because they thought that a parliament for the whole of Ireland was going to become really dominated by Catholics, because Catholics are in majority. And their culture, their religious freedom, and crucially their economic success was going to be jeopardised by people who were very different from them. We get a situation where nationalism which is the majority viewpoint when we look at the whole of the island because it fits with being Catholic, being of the native descent, really takes off into something more radical, something with stronger uh, ideals. We get to a situation then in the early 1920s where we've got a war of independence of these radical nationalists and republicans on the one hand versus the British government. And so this is a clash between the IRA. So this is when the IRA started in around 1918, 1919, clashing against British soldiers and policemen in Ireland. In order to settle this violence and bring it to an end, the British state decided to partition the island. Um, so Northern Ireland was born within this wider revolution in 1920, the Government of Ireland Act. This was going to be the only option to kind of bring this, this, uh, this conflict to an end was to give these people their own state because there couldn't be a whole state encompassing all these different views, especially given that the nationalism in the South was becoming so powerful, so radical uh, under the under the political leadership of Sinn Féin, but also with the militancy of the IRA. We see the establishment of a separate state, Northern Ireland, which is nonetheless part of the Union so it has its own seat, its own parliament at Stormont, but it's essentially a constituent member of the union along with Wales, England, Scotland, in the same way that the whole of Ireland had been for over a century. You know, when the Act of Union was brought in in 1801, it brought all of Ireland under UK control. Now, thanks to violent revolution in the early 20th century, we have partition and we have the North, staying with the UK and the South getting a degree of independence. Northern Ireland sort of entered its period of relative calm. You know, it's never really enjoyed, sadly, a, a, a long, long periods of, of peace. The peace and stability was bought at the expense of Catholic civil rights, essentially. So keeping the state functioning and stable is all about keeping the Protestants and loyalists in power and doing that on the back of the discrimination against against Catholics. Quite a fine sort of balancing act, which I suppose is still very much how you could describe um, the situation in the 21st century. Um, 
you mentioned Ireland becoming a republic, which was in 49. What did that then mean for, for Northern Ireland? What was then known as ERA, which had previously been the free state created in the, in the revolution of the, ended in 1922-23, it left the Commonwealth. So up until that point, it had a degree of independence, but it was still part of the empire, part of the Commonwealth. It left that. 1949 became a republic. And part of this um, piece of legislation that brought this in another Government of Ireland Act, also decreed that the, the Northern Ireland would remain with the UK until its parliament, Stormont, decides otherwise. So what this does is it makes control of Stormont even more important for unionists. Now the South is even more independent, so that's essentially even more a frightening prospect. And the power for that decision is placed back with the people of, of Northern Ireland. So it becomes um, even more important for, at that point, the ruling party, which is the UUP, the Ulster Unionist Party, to shore up their very precarious political and demographic majority from 1949 onwards. So this is what they do through the 50s and the 60s, is that they start to pursue even more aggressive policies of electoral and economic discrimination against Catholics or nationalists. So we see, you know, certain jobs being unavailable to Catholics um, and so forth. So Catholics are a minority overall in the state, but they're a significant minority. And in some areas... For example, the big cities like Derry, they start to become numerically a majority. So it becomes even more important as the South has essentially gone its own way in the Republic, that the North, under the control of the Unionists or the Loyalists, shores up its own power even more strongly. And it does this at the expense of Catholic nationalists. So is this the point when you had Republican militants becoming more prevalent and we began a spell that is referred to as the Troubles? We have the growth of civil rights, first of all. These civil rights marches start to take place in northern cities like Derry, like Belfast, and it's the way in which the Stormont government reacts to these demonstrations. For example, um, some of the early kind of civil rights marches um, and protests, so Derry in 1968, collapsed when the Northern Irish Police Force, which was called the RUC, Royal Ulster Constabulary, attempted to enforce violently rerouting of the march through a Catholic area. And demonstrations started to spread through the region and this develops into rioting and kind of conflicts between the different communities, the Catholics and the Protestants who are living essentially in their own areas. Um, you know, the Catholics tending to have poorer economic opportunities and more slum housing and so forth, but uh, sort of living side by side in this territorial in this territorial conflict. Um, so we might see, for example, a famous kind of explosion of this that would be the summer of 1969, where in August we get Protestant uh, groups from the Shankhill area coming into the Catholic Falls Road area in West Belfast, setting fire 
to houses and so forth. And this is a very much a tit for tat process. You know, both sides do it to the other side. So we get burnings, property damage, shootings. So as in other words, we get the disintegration of peaceful civil rights into brawling and violence because of the way the authorities overreact. And the reason that the authorities, the Stormont, you know, the local government for Northern Ireland overreacts is because their own situation is so precarious, you know, their grasp on power is very is very weak because demographically, numerically, their majority is, is very slim. This is when we see the British Army sent in in 1969 in response to this summer of violence and rioting and so forth. But this is the intervention by the British government, so British government as in the government of Westminster, the government of the whole of the UK, you know, not just the the local Stormont government. This is what essentially energises or maybe re-energises the militant Republican movement. And we see them in their most obvious form as the provisional IRA or sometimes called the provost in response to this intervention or invasion or whatever we want to however we want to characterise it by the British, which itself was in response to escalating violence and mismanagement by the Stormont authorities. Um, we see the provisional IRA as the main Republican grouping starting to begin from 1969, their long war of attrition against the British army, all with the purpose of the withdrawal of the British. Gradually, they start to get some support from the Catholic and nationalist population, um, not because normal people, normal Catholics, endorse political violence, not by any means, but Gradually what happens is that the, essentially, from the British perspective, these terrorist groups, especially the, the provisionals, become seen as a defender of communities against the incursions of the British army and the British state. So we see things like policies of internment coming in, um, putting Republican so-called suspects or supporters in these brutal makeshift prisons, prison camps like Long Kesh without trial. We'd already had Catholics feeling pretty downtrodden and subject to lots of oppressive measures at the hands of the regional government. Now what we see is incursions by the British army and the British state. And it really comes to a head in Bloody Sunday um, when the British army killed 14 innocent civilians, peaceful protesters, civil rights protesters. 1972 as a year is the worst of the troubles. 480 people died in 1972. After Bloody Sunday, killing of civilians by the British Army, we get Bloody Friday when the IRA released 19 car bombs in Belfast, killing nine, injuring 130. We have growing attempts actually to begin to find lasting political solutions. So we have the Sunningdale Agreement in 1973 which puts, puts ideas forward about um, a devolved power-sharing administration because what we've seen in, in the context of the violence is a suspension of Stormont and the local government and direct rule by the British, which, which understandably doesn't go down well um, with, with the Catholic nationalist population, especially when they see the British army shooting its own people, uh, shooting Catholic nationalists in the streets. Um, but we also see, as the war continues, 
some more deliberately terroristic tactics from the IRA. So these big show-stopping uh, moments like the murder of um, Lord Mountbatten, the Queen's cousin, in 1979, and indeed the bombing campaigns in Great Britain, Canary Wharf, in other urban centres. So it's about the performance of violence bringing attention to the cause, if you like. So we had sustained violence with a lot of background political discussion and it became political with people like Bobby Sands. Yeah, exactly. So he, he is someone who is a Sinn Féin MP. So he's a representative of the Republican Party, but he stands as an MP while he's in prison for terrorism charges, essentially. So what we see is the likes of Bobby Sands and others using the tactic of the hunger strike to bring um, sympathy and support to the cause. This is a very kind of brutal form of, of political protest, of course. But what it does show to Sinn Féin is the value of um, political engagement alongside national resistance. But what we are starting to see from this point onwards, so from 1985, is the mainstream leaders, I'd say especially probably on the Republican side, they start to see that, um, I suppose, that the long war is unwinnable. It's very hard for the British Army to defeat terrorist tactics like lone shootings and car bombs and so forth. But uh, on the flip side, it's also difficult for a guerrilla force, essentially, to, to win because it doesn't have the resources that the other side does. What we're seeing then is all sides, but perhaps especially a new commitment within republicanism and within Sinn Féin to get into to politics, so to use the ballot box more than the gun, um, uh, rather than the two alongside each other. They start to enter negotiations and then um, that were designed to reinstate self-government to Northern Ireland, to give Stormont its power back and to say, rather than fight it out, these different groups, you can sit together and come to a political resolution and share power together, which is the, 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 the term that was so important for the Good Friday Agreement. So from 94, we've got the ceasefire, the first ceasefire announced um, by the IRA. Um, the loyalists follow suit. So we've got the, these, these paramilitary groups giving up their weapons, essentially, from 94, which is really crucial in leading the way to the multi-party negotiations of, that led to the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. It was decided that Northern Ireland was to remain with the UK unless a majority of its voters determined otherwise. Um, and another th key principle it brings in is consent um, and power sharing. So it restores power to Stormont. So this is the devolved parliament in Northern Ireland that has been suspended throughout all the violence of the Troubles. The problem with the North had always been that one party, namely the Unionists, was in control, but it held onto that control and power very precariously at the expense of the rights and the freedoms and the economic opportunities of the other side. What 1998 says is that leads to violence. Instead, what we're going to do is share power, and we're going to have um, essentially a kind of a dual leadership. We'll have a first minister, but also a deputy first minister, and... These two sides are going to um, are going to share power and 
work together on a peace process, which is still an ongoing... I mean, the word process is important there because it's still an ongoing um, project. It was broken a number of times. The power-sharing arrangement has collapsed at a number of points. Devolution was suspended between 2002 and 2007. Direct rule from Britain wasn't imposed because that doesn't really work very well, as we've seen from history. There are lots of associated problems with the settlement over Brexit and the border and all the debates over whether it'll be a hard or soft border, how the two countries will relate to each other if one, because it's part of the UK, leaves the EU and the other, because it's the Republic, it stays with the EU. Um, these things are, are going on alongside a background of ongoing work and efforts to keep the to keep the peace and keep the power sharing going. So there's always been an element of fragility to the power sharing uh, in Northern Ireland since 1998. But with Brexit now and the backstop, and I'm I'm very keen that everything we do in these podcasts is uh, fact based and not opinion led. But can we see a a tipping of some scales, or is Brexit? Is this going to heighten calls for that referendum that the Good Friday Agreement permits? It could well do. There's actually been a few things that have been changing since over the course of the peace process, changes in the population. So Catholics, because of emigration and different demographic trends, Catholics are more numerous. Catholics, nationalists, 45%, Protestants are now a minority in the state at 48% for the first time since Northern Ireland was born. So even before even before the issue of Brexit and the border, things were already changing a little bit and the sheer you know weight of numbers was starting to suggest that perhaps you know in another generation Catholics will be go from a, a large minority to a majority the Republicans may be numerically stronger but the question of Brexit and the border also limiting people's freedom to move between the two countries I mean the whole idea of Good Friday and the power sharing and this kind of bringing principle of consent into Irish and Northern Irish politics was that there are these two very irreconcilable positions on the North, those who want the North to stay with the UK, those who want the North to be reintegrated and the island of Ireland to be one polity. But having a frictionless border, having people being allowed to move freely between the two places for trade, for seeing friends and family, for jobs, was a really great idea for peace and allowed people to see themselves however they wanted to be seen so they could feel that they're Irish or Northern Irish or British. All those positions couldn't exist concurrently. Whereas when you start to build physical borders, you start to have to make people choose and you start to see territory becoming aligned with identity, which is which is dangerous because that's that's what the root of the conflict was essentially. Um, but it is a very difficult position because this border was never, you know, it wasn't ever meant to last forever. It came as a solution to end violence in an earlier period of conflict in the early 20th century, in 1920, 21, 22. Reintroducing some kind of physical boundary is understandably a very frightening prospect for all sides, whether or not they, they however they feel about the EU, however they feel about um whether they're in the, the UK or the EU or a combination of the two, it's uh, quite a frightening prospect. It is. 
And uh, just to give this um, context, uh, we're recording this in uh, May 2020. So if anyone who uh, happens to be listening to this in 2025, all we can do is hope for the continued peace and cooperation <laughs> of all sides. And um, that's kind of the situation as it is. So um, thank you so much for your time, uh, Dr. Gemma Clark, Senior Lecturer in British-Irish History at the University of Exeter. Uh, before we sign off, uh, if anybody wanted to know specifically about the Irish Civil War and the violence, could you possibly suggest a book they might enjoy? I would heartily recommend uh, Everyday Violence in the Irish Civil War, uh, which is my first book. And it is about the earlier period of, of what I've been talking about today. It's about the independence struggle in the 1920s and what happened after after the treaty that partitioned North and South, that gave the South some degree of independence, the violence that ensued after that. So it's something of a precursor, um, maybe an origin story, if you like, to, to to the politics and conflict we've seen we've seen we see today ongoing. Thank you, Gemma, and thank you for listening to the Thirty Minute Expert, the podcast that aims to make you an expert on a chosen topic in thirty minutes. Information on new episodes can be found on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just search at 30 Minute Expert. That's 30 Minute Expert. You can also suggest topics for future podcasts. Just let me know what you'd like to become an expert at in half an hour or less.